you are listening to The Janine Garner Show. Janine is a leading expert on leadership and driving influence through networking and collaboration, passionate about bringing brilliant people together to achieve remarkable results. Join Janine Garner as she shares insights, interviews and conversations, and let's together make the remarkable happen. So, Janine, it is wonderful to be able to turn the table on you and give your listeners uh, an opportunity to not just unpack what unleashing brilliance means, but to actually get to know you better in a more personal kind of context. Um, Now, I know you really well, obviously, as your book coach, your editor, your friend and your mentee. Um, But I'm actually going to kick off today with a bit of a different question, something that maybe not a lot of people have asked you before. So I want you to imagine that we're back at your home where you grew up, sitting around the family dinner table. What is it that you smell? What's the aroma in your family home? (laughs) Oh, my God, that's hilarious because first of all, when you said dinner table, my first memory went to me and my brother actually being forced to sit in the kitchen on the kitchen bench whilst mum and dad sat at the table. And the only time we ever sat around the dinner table was on special Sunday lunches or if family were around. I lived in one of those houses where you had the posh room in the living room. <laughs> and so the, the dinner table was always, we only ever sat around it when it was Sunday or family came over. Um, so all I can think of is my mother's first attempt at Italian cooking. And she cooked spaghetti bolognese and me and my brother were in the kitchen trying to eat it. And we hated it so much that we actually, between us, concocted a plan of how we were going to discard it in the bin without her realising we chucked the spaghetti bolognese away. So in terms of aroma, I have no aroma. All I can think about is that moment of me and my brother trying to throw our dinner in the bin before mum came out of the lounge where she'd been eating dinner with dad and we got caught. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. I love that. So tell us, tell us more about the family home because you grew up on a farm. Is that right? Well, I grew up, my dad, my family had a farm. So we had a poultry farm um that but we lived as a family so me and my brother mum and dad lived in a in a different house away from the farm but dad essentially worked on the farm and my grandparents owned the farm so my dad's mum and dad and the farm you know we had sheep there was I just can still remember we had all these sheep in the field and there was one daddy sheep that was really evil that hated all the grown-ups um but for some reason he'd let me and my brother get on his back and ride him around the field uh, we had the tractors, mornings, sometimes we'd have to go out and collect the eggs. My granddad was a massive canary freak who, you know, bred canaries and showed canaries. And then there was this part of the farm that we couldn't go to and it was all decrepit and that's where the foxes hung out. And we had this orchard that we'd play around in where there were blind geese that would chase us. So it was a really weird weird farm existence. But the, the family business was poultry farmers um and then we had a market store that we would sell uh the chickens and the eggs from over the weekend and that was in the north of england so the far, the the market store was in bradford 
and uh, we had uh, this farm in a place called Yeadon near Leeds. My family home, um, I mean, if you look back sort of the generation before, we're from a, a mining community originally. So all my family heritage is very much sort of Durham and miners. And I grew up uh, during the Thatcher years. So I can still remember um, the miners strike and I can still remember all the power going off. And suddenly mum would come in with the fork with the bread on it. And dinner was toasting the bread on the fire that night via candlelight because there was no power to do anything else. And um, family life, I mean, it was pretty average. I mean, we, we spent a lot of time outside playing around on bikes. We'd, you know, go out when we, as soon as we had breakfast and come home, when the light went down. Uh, my mom spent a lot of time doing housework. That's all I can remember. You know, lots of, she always seemed to have, we called them hoovers in England. She always had a hoover on. I think it must have come out like four times a day. And then she spent all day washing and all day cleaning and the brasses would come down on a Friday and get polished up. I just remember the, this obsession with, with housework and cleaning. Um, and so we were pretty much left to our, to our own devices. But the, the, the fun times were, um, you know, those, those moments, because dad worked very hard, but I can still remember when we'd, we had this big Arctic truck where we'd go and, you know, pick up uh, or deliver chickens and you know we'd be able to sit there in the big truck on these big road trips and those are those are these moments of just being part of his life or sitting on his knee going around the farm in the back of the tractor but it was yeah it was a, a pretty normal laid-back uh, upbringing uh, we didn't really go on holidays uh, with the holiday that we went on was was to Filey or Scarborough like my first time I got on a plane I was 15 um, I think it was probably about 13 when we went overseas um, and very much you know one holiday a year uh, very much watching the pennies um, and and that was pretty much it it was a pretty normal upbringing so I really love how like in this, like a lot of it sounds quite idyllic, but also I would imagine that it's quite hard as well. Like farm life, you know, especially for your dad is sort of like 24 hours a day kind of work. Like it is a pretty hard going sort of thing. So you've got this lovely juxtaposition, especially if you talk about, you know, what you said about the, the family room, having your everyday room and then the posh room, it's kind of like this, you know, this idyllic and this shiny side, but also there's quite a, you know, there's another side to that story. How do you think that that's impacted you in getting to where you are today? I think ever since I was little, I've always been really curious. So I grew up in a generation and a part of the world that was very, very, um, it was quite sexist, quite chauvinistic. You know, the, the guys worked and the women stayed in the kitchen. Um, and even as a child, I can remember one Christmas, my grandmother buying me a nurse's outfit and my cousins, I was only the only girl uh, in the family and my cousins got plastic toy machine guns and they were allowed to go outside and play army. And I had to wait under the stairs for the soldiers to come home. I wasn't allowed to join in. And I can still remember that and being so angry about why not? Why, why can't I get out there? And, and dad worked really, like all I remember growing up was work, 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 work. It was very much work obsessed, 
worrying about cash. Um, and, and I think that's where probably my work ethic has come from in good ways and bad ways um, that I've had to sort of readdress. My dad's, you know, my dad's philosophy on life was literally where there's muck, there's brass love. Or it'll be right, and it was very much you've just got to put up with it. And if you work hard, you you will get somewhere. And I think my mom, um, as much as she absolutely encouraged us to become something and to dream, there was an element of her that was absolutely disappointed that her life that she hadn't been able to live her dream. And so. I think for me, I, I look, I, I, when I look back over my childhood, I spent a lot of time feeling like I was in an, in an observer role. Um, I never really felt like I fitted in. Um, I was always curious about there's got to be more. And yet I was fighting to some extent um, a perceived perception that this is all that there was. Um, and so, I mean, I left home at 18 um, and I never really went back. Um, so I was lucky enough. My, my escape really was the government at the time were giving out loans and grants to go to uni. And I was lucky enough to get one of those. Um, otherwise, I wouldn't have been able to go to uni and do, you know, start the direction that I'm in. And, um, and I think that really was the trigger for me to um, really start seeing the possibilities of more. And someone once said to me recently, actually said, Janine, I think your work is very much relates to the fact that you wish you'd always had somebody like you in your life. And I really think that's true because I never really had anyone to truly look up to. When I think about my childhood, there's nobody that I think back on that inspired me to become more is very much self-motivated. And I'd love to, I'm sure there's somewhere in the remnants of my brain, there would be a trigger somewhere. Um, and I don't quite know what it is yet. Actually, there, there may be one, and I think I write about this in the book of, you know, that first overseas trip ever on a plane was coming to Australia. Uh, my family that we were really close to moved here and uh, the only way we connected back at the time, you know, it was way before internet. And it was literally, you know, you'd book a time to have a two minute phone call without it costing the earth. You know, that's how we kept in touch. And for some reason we'd been, I think my grandparents paid for me, my brother and my mom to come to Australia because my dad refused to get on a plane. In fact, my dad refused and still refuses to leave the village that he grew up in. And um, I can still remember meeting this woman, this girl, I think she must have been in her 20s, on the Manly Ferry. I didn't realise it was a Manly Ferry back then. But I was 15 and I remember looking at her and listening to her. And she it was this English girl that had uh, moved to Australia. She was an air hostess and her commute was the Manly to Circular Quay Ferry. And I just remember going, wow, how, do, how does that happen? And, you know, the, the weird thing is about the universe, that's exactly what I do now. It's like I've gone full circle and I'm living near Manly. And when I commute to Sydney, I get the Manly Ferry. And so I often, I don't even know who she is. I've got no idea what her name is. I can sort of see her in my mind. But I wonder whether she was the trigger um, for opening doors to opportunity. I don't know. But I think I just continually striving. I've continually been searching for my place in the world.
So if you think about that girl on the ferry, in your mind, did she epitomise someone who was living a brilliant life to you? I don't think I... I don't know. I think it was more she was living a different life. It was more that she had chosen and been brave and courageous enough to do something different versus a brilliant life because I don't think I, I would have actually connected the two back then. Mm. How do you connect the two now? How would you answer that question now? Like what is a brilliant life to you now? I think... I think I'd like to ask this one in the reverse. What isn't a brilliant life? Because that is what I see. Um, I see so many people stuck. So many people that have dreams and aspirations and yet don't believe that they can get there. I see and hear and have conversations with people that feel like they're going through the monotony of life versus being or becoming what it is that they want to be. And so many people beating themselves up for what they think they don't have or what they think they're incapable of. And yet what I also see is incredible opportunity and potential. And um, the thing that gets in the way is a lack of ownership, uh, ongoing excuses, and actually, um, not tapping into your own hunger. You know, for some reason, we give so much out to other people that we put our lives on, our own lives on hold. Um, we think that our job is all about everyone else. And it sort of is. But I go, actually, unless you're looking after yourself first, how can you possibly unlock even more brilliance in other people? And so I think that the answer to your question is more about I see too much of the reverse happening of people not leading in the way they want to lead because they feel like they've got to conform, of people's diaries, of being slaves to their diaries and their to-do lists, um, of not pursuing their own goals and dreams. Um, so one of the questions I'll often ask people is, you know, so if you had to rank yourself and how you're looking after yourself right now in terms of your own goals and dreams, where would you rank yourself? If you're doing it on a scale of zero to 10 and 10 being awesome, and this is after talking about everything else. And very few people rank themselves above five. And then when I start asking, you know, tell me more, tell me more, tell me more, what is the dream? Like you can see this emotional shift of, um, of, of, wow, why have I stopped doing this? Like when do we forget to dance like nobody is listening? When do we forget to tap into that wonderful childhood imagination and all those dreams that we had as kids of what we wanted to be when we grew up. When do we forget to believe that we are capable of anything? You know, when, when is that moment when we stop dreaming and imagining and we start conforming and doing? And I think I'm on a bit of a mission to unlock as much brilliance as possible because if we can do that, I do believe that we have the chance to change how we work, how we live, how we lead, how we influence. We have the chance to have this contagious, incredible effect on other people. So 
So I'm curious, if I asked you that question about ranking yourself, how would you rank yourself? Oh, right now? Yeah, right now. <laughs> right now, Wednesday, after getting up and just doing a TV interview and working until I was on a podcast till 10 o'clock last night. Oh, my God. I, I reckon... But I'm that's the point, right? right? Because that's what you're saying. Like, we're all so busy doing things. We've got this and then that and uh, X, Y, Z. So... Yep how do you live and I know you live and breathe what you do and you teach every day I've taken so tomorrow inter- off. this is your life yeah totally so I've taken tomorrow off tomorrow there is no work happening I'm catching up with mates I went to the gym this morning because I know that if I don't do my exercise irrespective of how much sleep I had it's not good for my mental health um and because I was getting tired to the end of yesterday I really looked at today's diary and jiggled it around so I am constantly, I'm a working, it's an everyday working exercise and experiment in how can I get better and better and better at looking after myself. I am not perfect. It's a constant life journey. And there are moments, particularly given these last few months of huge upheaval in the world, where the reality is the, the dial totally shifted the wrong direction in the panic Uh, to maintain my business, to look after my family. But what I've learned to do is identify the tipping point. And I've learned how to take action. So if you'd have asked me this question 15 years ago, I'd have said, absolutely rubbish. I was at zero, one, two. I was totally in survival mode and I was massively time poor. I was also at a stage of my life where my kids were really young. Um, and so I was, you know, trying to hold on to a job. I was trying to lead teams. I was trying to get results. I was trying to manage three children under seven whilst running, a, whilst having a full-time corporate job. Um, I was trying to be a mom. I was trying to be a friend, a lover, a partner, whatever it may be. And I was exhausted. I wasn't doing any of it well at all. And the reality was the only thing that seemed to get my priority were, first of all, work. And it was. It was like that that paycheck was important. And I'd arrived in Australia. It was about the proving that I could do it, rightly or wrongly. Work was a priority. And then the second thing was essentially keeping head above water with family and being a mom. And the plates were was stacked in the wrong wrong direction because my own sanity and mental health um, just went through the floor and that wake-up call of Jane this is crazy you know the only thing that you can actually control is yourself being busy is not leadership Um, being jam-packed with other people's priorities isn't leadership and how can you possibly think and ideate and innovate and create and lead and make decisions when your brain is fried, which it was. And so I've been working really hard over the last 15 years to work out what works for me of how do I ensure that I am continually operating at my best to ultimately serve my family in the best way possible and serve my clients in the best way possible. So it absolutely has to start with me. But last with anything, it's up and down, it's round and round, it's definitely no A to B. It's sort of A with a massive lot of toing and froing and backwards and forwards, trying to get to B and sometimes getting to C. But that's the point. 
If we pay attention to it, we can improve. If we ignore it, that plate will crash. So most people who have met you, who know you, who listen to you on this podcast, I mean, even just listening to what you've just said then, like people would say you're a really passionate person. You're very much a people person, like everything that you've just said about, you know, you, you really have this inner drive to work on yourself but also impact other people and help them work on themselves as well. So it's kind of like this very, I think most people would sum you up as a very sincere person when it comes to taking an interest in other people's lives. For the most part, most people respond really well to this. But I would also say that there's a level of cynicism about this stuff today. Like, it, it, you know, are you being, if you reach out to me, are you being genuine or are you after something? Like, can you truly be brilliant or is it all just hogwash? Like, well, what's your take on that? And the, would you say that there is a level of cynicism around, around this stuff? It's a really curious question. Um, I would actually say to the cynic, tell me more. I'm curious as to why you think that. Why do you think that you can't become better? Who has told you that where you're at now is all you can achieve? When was the moment that somebody said to you that this is it? Because it's always, that's not my, my view is I absolutely believe that every single person wants to become better tomorrow than they are today. I believe that life, you're not put on this earth not to do incredible work, whether that is as an awesome parent, as an awesome friend, helping other people, a teacher, a nurse, a business owner, a leader, a CEO, a shareholder. There's a reason that we're here. You have the chance to make an incredible contribution and leave a legacy. And I want to work with those people that want to do that work um, because I believe that there is stuff going on that stops us from stepping into our brilliance. And so, yeah, I'd actually be turning the plates, the turning the table on those cynics and saying, tell me more. I'm curious. Why do you think that? Because therein is the answer. It's interesting. It's almost like coming full circle in terms of what you talk, talk about at the start and the background and the family that you came from. Because you've said your dad's still in the same place, right? Yeah. Still in the same little town in England, still doing the same old thing. Yeah. Do you think that's where your underlying drive for that comes from? I know that my underlying drive comes from, um, I have this insatiable curiosity about people. I have this incredible heart around and compassion to help people. I can sense it when they get stuck, I wanna push them through. And for me, it is this growth. I've got this, this which, which is really tricky. The flip side of how I am can sometimes mean incredible amounts of loneliness because I do have this incredible desire to learn and to keep learning and to keep being curious and to keep finding out more, uh, both about myself and the world at large. Um, and I don't settle. And I think the, the drive 
absolutely comes from a childhood of seeing a lot of hard work and not getting anywhere. Like I saw what the, the story that I didn't share is in England, and I can't remember the year, but you might remember it, Kelly, when the, there was the salmonella poisoning the pandemic. Um, and essentially our whole family unit was built on the industry of poultry. My dad had grown up in an environment for himself where, you know, you, you don't invest. Um, you know, my grandparents were putting the money under the bed and um, literally, you know, you get what you earn and you spend that. And there wasn't much spare cash. And when the uh, salmonella pandemic hit, essentially the business died because in England, people stopped. Do you remember this, Kelly? Do you remember it? England stopped oh, buying eggs and poultry. Which very and young. The whole thing died. The upshot of that for my family was that essentially they lost everything and dad had to make the tough decision to sell the farm and he ended up selling it to a property developer. The farm doesn't exist anymore. When I last drove past five years ago, you know, there's a big housing estate on, on that land now. But he lost because he hadn't got the right advice. He ended up having to pay you know, a significant amount of money in capital gains and he came out of it with nothing. After all those years of incredible hard work and the impact of that hit his self-esteem, the impact of that, lots and lots of story in between. My parents ended up splitting up. The impact of that was, you know, 18, um, they went separate ways. Um, and I just saw this dream all fall apart. And I think when you ask what my driver is, my driver absolutely is, I don't ever... I don't ever want to be in that position where things fall apart because of a lack of knowledge. It's so interesting, that story. I don't think you've ever shared that story before. <laughs> um, but I find it really interesting if you look at where we're at right now. Mm. I mean, you know, at the, the current time that we're talking, we are sort of just coming out of a pandemic, but we're still in it. Yeah, we're still in a uh, in a world pandemic, and what you've just described about your 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 family like that's real for a lot of people yeah. right now. Have you? How do you feel about that? Like, have you reflect? Have you noticed that that's brought anything? Is is there any lessons that you've taken out of what? How do you see what's going on right now, and 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 what's happening for people having known that? that had personal experience of how that's impacted someone very, very close to you. Oh, totally. And I think in terms of how it impacted me, it absolutely has made me, it's given me a bit of a survivor spirit. Um, you know, if you talk to my parents now, well, particularly my mom, um, yeah, I, I'm very independent and very much a survivor because I've had to look after myself pretty much most of my life. Um, and get myself out of a lot of trouble over the course of that, that life. Um, and, and so the flip side of what I've, and, and where I'm at now, I, I enter my natural MO, my natural instinct when the proverbial hits the fan is I go into survival mode, right, what do we need to do? And you've probably experienced that in some of our one-on-one -on -one sessions. In terms of what I see around, I mean, it's, it is heartbreaking because I see 
you know, businesses that haven't had small businesses and business owners that haven't necessarily had the, the smart advice about building up that foundation so that they have the ability to make choices to flex and change based on market decision or economic change and the challenge that that has. Um, you know, this, this, it, it, and, and that, it, that is what I'm seeing and the impact of it on people's confidence and people's self-esteem, um, on people's dreams. You know, the people that have worked so hard, but I got a text from somebody yesterday who literally worked so, 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 so hard to build her business. Um, probably then about five years ago, she lost everything. She rebuilt it. And she's finally just been diagnosed with depression because she's gone up and down so much through the last 10, 15 years. And now it's like picking yourself up. It's like, here we go again, here we go again. And I even said to my husband, oh my gosh, I'm not, I'm not sure I can do this again. If this all falls apart, I'm not sure I can do this again. But that was just one of those, you know, fleeting, uh, you know, little moments of the voice in your head going, because actually I go, no, I can. It, it fires, it fires me up. But I think we're yet to see the, the true, true impact of all of this right now, Kelly. I think at the moment, so many of us are in fix it, are in sort of band-aid strategy. Um, like I've been trying to say to people, please don't say you're surviving. Please say you're stabilizing just for that mindset difference. Um, but it's almost fix it, fix it. It's like we're plugging holes. And um, the reality is for some people, for some families, for some businesses, for some industries, there are too many holes to plug. And that, that transactional plugging of holes isn't actually what we need because we need the space to actually go in this world of incredible change where we are being challenged from a macro perspective on three key levels. We're being challenged economically and we haven't yet seen the impact fully globally. We're being challenged from a health perspective as a result of the pandemic. And again, we've not seen the final results and outcome of that. And we are now overlaid with these challenges from a society perspective, where essentially the masses are starting to rise up more. We're seeing it in the US uh, with all of the, the um, stuff that started with race, which is now filtering around the rest of the world. We're seeing the increased awareness of the Me Too and that, that movement. Um, you know, we're getting more and more cases of uh, very inappropriate behavior that's been happening on a large scale, starting to come out in the media. We're starting to challenge the media on what's actually going on. So you've got these three massive my macro changes going on and challenging all of us right down to our macro level because every single one of us is being affected in some way. And yet that, that Maslow hierarchy of need, that basic need of safety and security is equally being challenged. And I think this is part of, part of why, you know, this book is so right for right now, because we can be so uh, desperate to grab answers and to try and fix and to try and plug those holes and to try and look for control and to try and make plans and to essentially deflect ownership out to those macro places that you forget about the impact that you yourself can have, that actually your journey, your life, 
your vision, your goals, your family, your dreams, absolutely everything is in your control. It's your responsibility. And I think that's what I've learned from childhood, moving away from home at 18, and essentially every high and low through my life to where I'm at now is when the shit hits the fan. The only way out of it is I've got to sit back and take control, own where I'm at, own the journey to that poor decision and actually go, enough, reset. Now, what am I going to do? What can I control out of this? And essentially, you know, that is the essence of being, of starting to be brilliant. It's taking ownership of the fact that who you are, who you are being and who you want to become is all down to you. Your journey to here is as it is. Your journey into the future is yet to be written. But you absolutely have control over it. If you're brave enough to take control, if you're brave enough to own your decisions, if you're brave enough to not accept excuses, if you're brave enough to understand that brilliance is a practice, it requires work. It's like learning to do yoga or meditation or training for a marathon. You don't get there overnight. You have to stumble and fall over and reflect and reset and go again. You have to listen to other people. And you have to, as someone was saying to me yesterday, it's like, oh my gosh, Janine, it's like, I have to, I have to face fear in the face and go for it. I go, absolutely you do. Because every single one of us has got this new frontier of brilliance that is out there ready to be taken. And it's a choice as to whether you're going to go on that journey, whether you're going to enter into that abyss of unknown because you've got no idea what the outcome is, whether you're going to stay here. And if you stay here, that's cool. It's absolutely cool. But I reckon there's a lot of people that can see that there is a frontier of comp- of a new frontier of brilliance and they're just not sure how to get there. And that's, that's why I had to write this book. Mm. So that said... Who would you say in your mind is someone who is leading a brilliant life? Like someone for you that is demonstrating what brilliance is. <laughs> well, under the, under the pretense that brilliance is a practice and you never, ever fully, fully get there, maybe nobody actually is. Um, but there are certainly people that are living a more brilliant life. So over the last three years, I've been running a podcast, hosting a podcast, Unleashing Brilliance. And really that started off with this curiosity around that question, who is living a brilliant life? Who, who's really nailing it? And actually, is there a tipping point? I wonder if there's a tipping point between being actually pretty good, but then being brilliant. Or is good all there is? And what was really interesting, whether I spoke to industry leaders, business owners, entrepreneurs, world-class athletes, there was this tipping point. There were these moments where it was almost, uh, wow, I'm no longer striving and proving and striving and proving, striving for more, proving I'm good enough, striving for more, proving I'm good enough. There's this point that I've tipped where I'm actually in flow, And things are starting to happen. 
And when I really listened deeply into these interviews that I did and these conversations and the further interviews and conversations I did, this is where these, these four traits were coming out that were consistently being talked about from these people that to the outside world were living a brilliant life. But every single person, every single person uh, that I spoke to has a thing that they're working on to become better. Even yesterday, right, I, uh, I had the pleasure of uh, being interviewed by the CEO of a major online book retailer. And we were having a conversation about the book. And I, at the end of it, I said, so, so what can I do for you? What can I help you with right now? And he said to me, actually, I've really got to work on law too. I've really got to manage that right now. And that's the point, Kelly. It's like, you know, he's, he is the top of that organization. Uh, he's all about people, shareholder value, client value, customers. He's got grown up kids. Um, as he said, he's worked to achieve his goal. He's continued, he's got a massive growth mentality. So he's constantly accelerating his learning. He's really clear on his style and what his vision is. But there's always one thing that we have to keep working on for him. It was the uh, energy piece of law too. So when I, when I, to answer that question, it's really hard because I actually look at people and I admire them for what they're achieving. I admire them for the contribution they're making. And it's the people um, that, that you know when you get to know them have gone over that tipping point or have, that, have faced their fears or have challenged conformity or are doing things differently. Those are the people that I'm, I admire. When I talk about a brilliant life, it's not one dimensional. It's not just about work. It's not just about what you achieve if you're an athlete. It's, you know, it's, it's not just about that stuff. It's about who you are and who, who it is that you are being. And I think if I were to, as I'm percolating this, I'm going, you know, the people that I think make a brilliant life, it really is the impact that they're making every day on other people. It's that footprint they're leaving behind. Um, that, to me, is a brilliant existence. So what's your one thing, Janine? What's your way? Everybody's on? got one thing that they're working yeah. on. What's your? Yeah. What would you say is your one thing that you're working on at least right at now. the moment? Right now. So again, I was interviewed the other week, and we were talking about uh, the concept of the voices in our heads, uh, which is part of Law One. So Law One of Brilliance is about being you and owning your spotlight. And one of the things that works against us there are the voices in our heads. And I was telling the story of Shaolin Shackle, uh, the CEO of uh, an organization in the UK, and how she'd actually gone, oh, yes, Mildred gets in the way for me. I, Aaron, what are you talking about? Who's Mildred? And she went on to describe that she's labeled the voices in her head as Mildred the orangutan, and that she literally will have it in her head argument with Mildred before she steps on stage she runs that town hall meeting she does something really scary she literally goes Mildred shut up I'm good I'm fine <laughs> she literally puts Mildred in a corner and the question I got asked is oh my gosh so what's your Mildred 
And, and you know, right now, they, my Mildred is a, actually a little green frog called Fred that sits on my shoulder. And I'll, I'll go, I'm all right, Fred, don't worry about it. Right now, the law I'm working on is managing Fred because there is nothing more scary than putting your work out into the world for people to absorb and to comment on. And as you know, as my as my uh, book editor and coach, um, this book has been a journey of blood, sweat, and tears of um, you know sharing personal story of talking like I am now of allowing you to dig deep of of sharing my thinking. There is nothing more scary for me than putting that out into the world. Um, but I have to own my spotlight. I have to do this job. I've, I have to share this work because I've been speaking and training thousands of leaders over these last few years on this message and the impact that it has is incredible. And so it, it's time to take that word further. It's time to share more of me in the hope that it helps other people achieve my vision, which is a significant amount of people, millions of people stepping into their brilliance and being the change that they want to be. Um, but it's scary. And it goes back to that childhood of fear of failure, of losing everything. And you know, Kelly, because I said to you, who am I? I remember one moment and I said, I, who am I to put this work out? I haven't done a PhD in behavioral science or people. You know, who am I? And I can still remember you literally got so angry at me. You said, Janine, your life is your work. <laughs> okay. But with that comes fear, right? Because if your life is your work and someone's going to challenge it, question it, that's your life. And your view of your own life that's been questioned. It's not like you can back it up in statistics. So right now, it's I'm I'm mani I'm working on law number one, owning my spotlight, embracing my flaws, owning my jiggly bits, trying to step into this is me and this is who I am, which I do because I've kept it quite safe up to now. Like people see me in my environment, my clients know me. Um, but it's taking, it's amplifying me so that more people can have access to it through this book. Um, owning my plan, owning my dreams, owning my expertise. Law number one, and managing Fred. <laughs> <laughs> he always sits on this shoulder too. I always point it out because he's always there, that little green shiny tree frog. <laughs> I can see it now too. I'm... <laughs> Every, the next time I look at you, I'm going to see is your frog. <laughs> so, so, uh, so Chad Littlefield asked me that question, actually. And um, he said he actually uh, set the challenge to people listening. He says, so if you ever see Janine, you've got to tell her, we've got it. We've got Fred. We've captured him in the corner. It's like, yes, please do that. <laughs> nice. I love it. Oh, Janine, you've, you've shared, we've, we've covered a lot today and you've shared a lot of yourself. So I've got to thank you for, for your vulnerability and sharing because I know that some of those stories you haven't shared before. Um, and so you are stepping into your spotlight, becoming your own voice on your own podcast. And I know everybody um, who listens back will really appreciate that. Before we let you go, what is one thing that I haven't asked you today that I should probably ask? Oh, what's for dinner? 
question that I should probably yeah, ask let's... Jason that, shouldn't I? <laughs> I know, I get, I've got no idea. Let's do takeaway. Uh, what's my question to ask? Oh, that's a really good question. That's a really good question. I don't know because I have totally surrendered to you, Kelly. So you like you're asking me to get back into my own head. Can I can I can I pass on that one? <laughs> I think what's for dinner kind of sums it up nicely. It's a nice roundabout there. We started at the start about your family dinner table when you yeah. were growing up. Now we're back to your family dinner table where you are now. And you've got no idea what's going to be for dinner. <laughs> but here's the thing that, that does round it up. So in my house, we are pretty consistent every single night. So I've got a almost 17-year-old, 14-year-old and a 12-year-old who, you know, they're all starting to live their own lives. They're all very busy. You know, we've got boyfriends and girlfriends on the scene and homework and all that sort of stuff. But in respect of that, it doesn't matter where any of us are, we always have dinner. We always sit down and have dinner. Um, and I absolutely think that goes back to that childhood of me and my brother being forced to sit in the kitchen <laughs> to eat our dinner while mum and dad sat at the table. <laughs> but I mustn't judge because maybe that was the only time that they had to themselves. And that's why we've got to start getting curious. It's like, I wonder why that happened I wonder what have I made it turned it to mean for me but I wonder if that's the true story have I created something out of it I love it thank you it's a lovely wrap-up thank you Janine I think you're brilliant thank you and I know everybody else listening back is going to think you're brilliant too thank you for thanks Kelly we hope you enjoyed listening to the Janine Garner show follow her blog, purchase her books or find out more, visit her website janinegarner.com.au. Brilliant people, extraordinary results.